Hello and welcome to Thinking Religion. I'm Thomas Whitley. I'm Sam Harrelson. Hey, guess guess what today is, Thomas? What's today? I know I know what you're thinking. I, I know you're thinking it's Pixel Day. Hashtag hashtag Team Pixel. That is what I was thinking. Which they they put all over the box. It's really funny. I'll, I'll talk about that later. But today's our anniversary. Not me and you, but my <laughs> partner and I. <laughs> I was like, oh, do we have? Did I forget our anniversary again? No. <laughs> Damn it, Thomas. It's close to our anniversary because we went on the uh, on the on the DC Savannah Charleston uh, Charleston trip, trip like close to ten years ago. It wasn't in t- 20, uh, 2007? something like that? that. I don't know. Twenty oh eight. It might have been two thousand eight. Yeah, it's it's definitely we're coming up on the ten year anniversary for that trip. Ah, that's crazy. Now, so Mariana and I um, were married uh, today four years ago. I was there. You were there. One of the few times we've got to hang out in person in the last ten years. I know. Yeah, yeah, that was that was fun. Thank thank y'all for everything you did that weekend. Sorry, I didn't remember your anniversary. I know. I can't believe you didn't write that down. Well, it, I, I'll always remember. So your your partner's uh, birthday is the same week as is our anniversary. So that yeah, that's a good me. that's a good way to do it. I should think about that. I remember your birth. I don't forget your birthday, but um, I did not have your anniversary. I need to plug that into my calendar. <laughs> it's okay. So we're not the type of people that put it all over Twitter and Facebook right. and Instagram. I know a lot of people do, and I and I appreciate that, no problem. But um, you know, like our, like our kids' birthdays and and you know, like you know Mariana's birthday, that that type of stuff. We did we don't we don't really broadcast that, which it, it's so interesting because my friends who rarely use Facebook or Twitter. You know, when it is something like a partner's birthday or partner anniversary, whatever, that you know, they'll they'll say, "Oh yeah, you know, it's it's a uh, happy anniversary, honey. I love you." Right. Hashtag together. Hashtag strong. Team Pixel. Hashtag Begonia anniversary. It's the Begonia anniversary. Um. So, but some of that to me seems like it. Oh, we think this is the thing we're supposed to do. Oh, right. yeah. it's, it's a social right. requirement now, which is partly why. I mean, we don't do a lot of that either. We did like ten year anniversary. We did this year, so we're like, hey, you know, hey, it's been a decade or whatever. Um, but you know, we we kind of push back against some of that, and we actually, you know, birthdays, anniversaries, Valentine's Day, a lot of that stuff just isn't a huge deal to us. We you know do kind of celebrate them, but we don't make this massive deal out of them. Um, yeah, so I do think that for a lot of people, it is. Well, you know, how are people going to know that I love my partner if I don't put it on Facebook? Yeah, so you got to you got to put your right. professional love on Facebook. Got to make a Facebook official. <laughs> but uh, I mean, I've had people. You know, we, we live in that weird middle ground where we're all still trying to figure this out. But I've had people say like. Well, why didn't you, you know, put something about this on Facebook? Um, or you know, like like Mariana. I mean, she she grew up in college right. with Facebook, which we didn't do. Yeah, so it, yeah. you know, because she's a few years younger than us, someone more than me, and, and you. But when she was in a in college, like Facebook was rolling out, and it was just, just for, for college um, kids, right? College exactly. kids. Yeah, yeah, and you had to have the. Uh, at first, it was like just certain colleges, and it was right. a .edu address. Yeah, I, I got in with my Yale address because <laughs> right. you know that's an alumni. Yeah, I resisted for a long. So a it Yale was address. becoming popular when I was in college, and a lot of my friends were on it, and I resisted for a really long time. 
Um, which is kind of funny now thinking back on that versus like how I am now on social media. Um, but I think so I got on Facebook and that was whatever it was at the time. But I really think it's when you got me on Twitter in what like summer of 2009 that everything changed for me. Um, and kind of my relationship to the internet and to social media in particular. And I mean, that makes sense because that's when social media was really becoming a thing. But, you know, you think back in the days of Google Wave and all of that. Um, so it's been kind of funny for me to watch my own personal transformation in regards to social media. I love me some Google Wave back in the day. Rest in peace. <laughs> Google Buzz, Google Wave. Google yeah. Buzz, man, yes. Yeah, I know. That was so so weird because you were you were I mean still very resistant especially to like Twitter but um, yeah I remember you know things like Instagram and stuff you're like rrr, 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 rrr. And, and for a while you know we were trying to stay strong with our own blogs and <laughs> we were trying to well well that changed I mean for me a lot when I was when I started writing for mostly for marginalia right um, or most of my content was going there Um and now it's just been, I've been trying to get back in it a little bit or wanting to, um, haven't been very successful. Um, but it, it is something I want to do. Are you also doing that, Martinelli? It's still, it's still going. I'm not writing for them anymore. Um, there were some changes at the top of the masthead and I was going to stay on in a slightly different role, but, uh, with everything that was going on at the time, it, seemed like it was actually a, a better decision for me to um, just move out of marginalia not because of anything they were doing but just because of things that were going on in my life at the time I think it was the right decision but I'm now at a point where okay I'm kind of ready to be back riding again yeah so, so do you think you'll get back to something yeah. like that or are you going to go the independent route uh, for now I'll probably just go independent I don't know what will happen after that but um I'll just, you know, bring it all back home as you continue to do over the years. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I need to revisit that. It's been a couple of years. I used to do a yearly kind of check up and say, okay, yeah. well, I'm posting all my pictures here and there. But, you know, I, uh, like I was watching Maggie Haberman on Twitter today, who, who's a uh, journalist with the New York Times. Right, and a fantastic journalist. A fantastic journalist. And, and she gets some great scoops and, and really kind of holds everyone to, their, to, to the fire. But she was talking about um, launching something. I, I kind of I was busy all day, so I wasn't able to sit there and watch Twitter for hours on end, like some of our friends do, <clears throat> and uh, posting gifts. And I, so uh, I kind of saw that she was talking to someone about a website. Oh, it was Jeff Jarvis who who posted this oh, okay. other thing we're going to talk about with with Pew. Uh, but but she was saying like, well, having a website's kind of an afterthought, and you know I've, I've created my thing based on social media, journalism, and, you know, pointing people back to a, a website was kind of a, sec- a secondary idea, which, you know, we've heard about for a long time. Right. Um, and over the years, I mean, the last 10 years that, that we've really had kind of concentrated social media, and I know social media has existed for that. Don't email me. I was blogging in 2001. <laughs> Don't at me. Don't at me. Don't slide into my DMs with your open web stuff. Um, and I'm a big advocate for that, but I think in, in this day and age, you know, if if your company or your brand or your person, or even if you're a thinker, and you're not on something like Twitter, 
or Instagram or Snapchat. You know, like like find find your space, find find where you're comfortable. If you can right. if you can make it in the morass that is Twitter, it's a wonderful space. You know, if you want to go over to Snapchat and do Snapchat stories or Instagram Instagram stories and compete with you know attractive 25 year old models or you know whatever Instagram stories are are doing these days. That's the one thing I never. I never got into. Mariana loves it. I, I can't. I can't do Instagram stories. Anyway, um, you know, you, you have to find like where you're comfortable. So whether it's, you know, that the white supremacy on Twitter or, um, you know, the beautiful people on Instagram. But but you know, uh, stick out stick out a uh, a foothold and and get people to. I would say go back to something like your hub, which right. yeah, which in your case would be a website um, or a blog, if you will. Maggie Haberman. That would be you know the New York Times. Um, but I think when you put all of your content on something like Twitter and that's where you live and you don't point people back to another place, like you're beholden to that. And I was listening to a, a podcast that, uh, Walter Isaacson does, um, called Trailblazers, I believe. And it's, it, it's sponsored by Dell, whatever, but, uh, yeah. well, for those who, for those who don't remember, Walter Isaacson wrote the really great Steve Jobs biography. The I, I don't know biography. if it's really great, but yeah. <clears throat> okay. He wrote the Steve Jobs biography. He wrote the Einstein biography. Einstein he, was good. You know, yeah. he, he wrote the Ben, Ben Franklin biography as well, which is really good. Franklin and, uh, and Einstein are, are fantastic. He's got a new one out about Leonardo, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, which I'm, I'm reading now. I've not seen that one. I have the Einstein one on my shelf that I haven't read yet. So, yeah, Einstein's um, good. I need to read that one. Yeah, yeah and, and Leonardo, Leonardo's good. So he basically is uh, focused on the notebooks. And he, he's gone through like 700 notebooks. And um, you know, he's, he's trying to tell the story kind of from a first-person point of view. Um, but it, it's a good read so far. Uh, but he talks about like Bill Gates, who has a, I didn't know this, has a collection of Leonardo notebooks in his house. That he bought for thirty million dollars a couple of years ago. Of course, <laughs> I'm like that belongs in a museum. Right, um, <laughs> Indiana Jones. Uh, so, so you know, Isaacson got to, of course, go and, and hang out with Bill at his house, his automated house, and um, you know, check out the notebooks. But he makes the point that these notebooks are amazing, and it's wonderful to read them because all throughout these years that, that Leonardo is, is working in, in uh, Florence and Milan, he's kind of experimenting with different ideas and you get things like the Vitruvian Man and, and that kind of stuff kind of you know happening early and um, sketches and thoughts and, and reflections. And he says, you know, we can all do this. You don't have to be you know, a genius for Leonardo da Vinci to have like a cool collection of notebooks. And we should all be doing this because in two generations, your grandchildren are not going to be looking at your tweets or your Facebook posts. They're going to be looking at your notebooks if you have them. And that's, you know, he, he kind of said that and I uh, shed a little tear because I'm, I'm a big fan of that. So, I mean, last night I finished an, a, another notebook and I've got my little cedar box of notebooks to keep the mice and the, the moths out. Um, going back to 2003 or four, I believe, I've kept up with so far. And I mean, not I, I. I don't matter. <laughs> I'm just I'm well over my my productive right. age of whatever for the universe. <laughs> I've procreated. Um, you know, I've shared some thoughts. I wrote some things down. I, like the universe is out to get me at this point, and and that's cool. But I, I still I, I want to leave something for my kids, my grandkids, you know, whoever to 
you know, to kind of say like, oh, this is who Sam was. And, and podcasting is part of that, but I, I think right. notebooks are much more intimate. So I like well, that's the, part of the reason that I still have, you know, make a point that I want physical books and right. Cause you have that physicality. So I have a, you know, some portion of my library is, uh, was part of my grandfather's library, which is meaningful to me, but also I can look in his books and I can see his notes. I can see the things that he underlined that either he had a question about or he thought was interesting or was inspiring to him. Um, so it's, you know, he, people that have previously read a book and, and taken notes in it become part of the conversation, right? So when I loan my books to other people, which I do, um, I'm not a stickler on don't do anything. I, now, I don't really like you bending pages, but other than that, like if you want to write in it, write in it. If you want to write questions, if you want to respond to my comments, that's fine. Like it's this whole conversation that's going on. Right, and it's this thing that you don't get by, you know, we're not passing down our, our Kindles with eight hundred thousand, you know, free eBooks on it. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, once the nuclear holocaust happens with North North Korea or Russia or whoever, <laughs> right? Like next week, whoever Donald Trump gets into a war with, like notebooks are going to be something that that tethers us to a time and a place. And I I, I think that one of the, the great sort of travesties of this wonderful era of digital reinvention of, of publications, of, of expression, and things like Facebook and Instagram and all these wonderful ideas that we're able to, to pounce on and, and realizations that we're, we're taking more pictures every minute in the United States alone uh, than we took from like the invention of photography up until 2006 or something. Yeah. I mean, that's insane. You know, and, and we've got all these wonderful selfies and all this great AI. I mean, I've got a new phone today, and I can squeeze the sides of it, and it triggers the AI assistant. And, and that's fantastic. But uh, historians, our families, our people who, who want to know about us 200, 300, 500, 1,000 years from now, are going to look back on us and say, what the hell is wrong with these people if we're still around? Uh, I mean, this is a digital dark age, and... You know, we, we like to make fun of the the Vikings and the Dark Age people or whatever, you know, around a thousand. But they're going through a similar kind of technological transition between um, oral traditions, you know, Beowulf type stuff, not to be pejorative. But, you know, th- that kind of larger oral tradition into the written word, um, well, vernaculars. And, and, yeah, anyway, I, I just worry about that a lot. Let's talk about the Dark Ages for a second, okay? I mean, obviously, it's a pejorative term, and, we're, and we want to talk about Vikings, too, because... I, I fucking love Vikings. <laughs> Sam fucking loves Vikings. Okay. I'm a Viking, um, said the, the, king of, the king of Norway is a Haraldson, you know? I know the Haraldsons, yes. right? Yep. That's and my, um, peeps. Which is in... Um, yeah, it, it is in, it's in the Vikings show, right? The first Earl was Earl Haraldson. Yeah, that? yeah. Well, yeah. It, it's, it's Harold, King Harold. And then right. his three sons are on the so, show as well on that show. Right. So, um, yeah. So anyway, so obviously dark ages is a pejorative term. And I guess it depends on who you're talking to that dates it. But what people, people typically date it from about 500 to about 1500. And In 476, yeah, follow Rome. Right. So, okay, that makes sense. But basically, I mean, this is obviously just so well, kind of white western ethnocentric right or at least kind of in our imaginations a lot of people like to think of the greeks and the romans as you know this kind of bastion really of kind of white civilization they would they don't talk about it that um 
you know, kind of that explicitly often, but that's really what you think about. So it's like, okay, we had Jesus and, and the cool followers of Jesus afterward, and then kind of nothing really happened, and then we get the Reformation. And so, like, everything in between there doesn't really matter, which is obviously, as a historian, just makes my skin crawl. Um, and I'm a historian who works in the, I guess, er, you know, often in the early Dark Ages, going up into 600. I even went, you know, up to 1200 in my dissertation. Um, but the, what most people fail to realize is that what so, the so-called Dark Ages, uh, right in the middle of that, in the 800s, 900s, around 1,000, that's some of the um, kind of most textual production that we have. And in fact, the majority of what we have, the majority of the manuscripts um, from the Bible survive from around the eight and 900s. Uh, almost all of the manuscripts that we have from uh, like kind of Greco-Roman, what we consider classics now, survive because of that. And it was, and it was largely spurred uh, by um, an Islamic translation project around 900 exactly right and so we wouldn't have these coffee and and right so we wouldn't have these you know great greek and roman classics and we wouldn't have a lot of the uh, really good uh you know the kind of the some of the early manuscripts for christian documents if it weren't for you know muslims in the quote-unquote dark ages algebra it's just really funny right yeah right all these things that we wouldn't have but just this idea that we have the dark ages as if nothing was happening there and it's like, no, just open your eyes. Like, we wouldn't know about anything that happened before it, largely, if it weren't for what did happen during this time period. So. Well, even in the in the show The Vikings, um, I forgot the king's name, uh, of Wessex, the king of Wessex. Uh, anyway. Oh, who's the king of Wessex? Yeah, I can't remember. The guy in the bathtub. We're in the, we're in the middle of watching it. The guy in the bathtub, exactly. We're in the middle of watching it. <laughs> he he, uh, he uh, has a thing king for Eckbert. Ragnar. King, King Egbert, right, right. King Egbert. Yeah. So, he, you know, he's he's got... And he has his own little kind of, um, it's not, not a translation project, but a, a kind of manuscript copying project exactly. going on too. And he's got Athelstan in there, and, and right. he's like, hey, God, I love that season. It's a great season. We're, we're talking about the TV show Vikings that comes on History Channel, but you can find it. I know, Thomas, you watch it on Amazon. I think we watch it on, I think I buy each season because we're up it's to on, like six yeah. now. It's on Amazon Prime, and um, it's also on On Demand, at least on... Uh, Xfinity. Yeah, so it, it's such a fun show, um, especially the first couple of seasons. It gets a little hairy in the third season. Stick with it. The, the fifth and sixth season kind of redeem it. Ragnar has some some troubles. That's all I'm going to say. Problems. Um, but uh, that that kind of scene, or, or those scenes with uh, Eckbert when he's talking to Athelstan, the, the Christian monk, um, who is definitely Ragnar's boyfriend. Did, did you like the threesome scene with Ragnar and, and uh, he, he invites uh, Athelstan in, into the... Early on, yeah, like in the fir- when he first gets him, he's like... That, that hooked me on the show. I was like, all right, yeah. well, he's inviting the Krishna monk into a threesome with his right. beautiful Scandinavian wife. Like, <laughs> right. It's going to be a great show. So, um, <laughs> anyway, uh, Egbert shows uh, Athelstan this, this amazing collection of, of Roman stuff he's collected. Um you know, from around Britannia, and he's like, hey, you know, I, I need help doing this, and here's all these great manuscripts, and help me translate these. And, of course, Applestand does what, you know, Applestand does, but but even in those shows, or even on that show, in those episodes, um, it, it's almost as if, well, we, we've lost this knowledge, we don't know what any of this says, but I think it's right. important. And that's not true, and that's, you know, yeah, that there was some loss, definitely, in, in Western Europe, but, um, 
I mean, God, the 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 quote Middle East, Near East, whatever you want to call it, uh, the areas that now we associate with Iraq or in. I mean, those areas were hotbeds of learning, and they had algebra, they had zeros, they had coffee, and all of those things impacted the West in in such strong ways that we we still are reeling from. And St. Thomas Aquinas directly has kind of Arab scholars to thank for his theology, which right. leads into Calvin, which leads into, you know, everything else. But anyway. And that's how we got Jesus. And oh, that, that's um, where Jesus came from. He came right out of Aquinas' mouth. Exactly. So, and, I mean, this is, you know, this all relates to, you might have seen in the news recently, this kind of story that went viral this past week about um, a Viking garment that apparently had the word Allah uh, in Arabic um, kind of uh, stitched into it. And so, you know, it was posted first on a on a Swedish site and then got picked got picked up and, and went viral and now it's been since debunked. Um, it was really interesting and there's there was a really good there's a really good piece on art world that's kind of a short recapping of kind of the first major debunking that came out on Twitter by Stephanie Mulder, who is oh, I forget where she is, but I'll find out real quick and tell you. Um She's an associate professor of medieval Islamic art and archaeology at uh, UT Austin. That's where she is. Uh, and so she had this great 60-part thread on Twitter uh, debunking it. And then finally some people have interviewed her. Uh, but it's really interesting kind of how this kind of gained steam. You know, a lot of people are attributing, to its, attributing its virality to it kind of supposedly debunking the white nationalist myth of the Vikings of this kind of pure white Christian group. Right. Um, and, and, and so it's interesting. So the idea is that there's this garment and this fragment of the garment, um, has, uh, Allah, uh, stitched into it as you reconstruct it, you can see, and it's in a square Kufic script. And then all, there are all problems with it. The fact that this, you know, we don't have examples of this type of square Kufic script until, you know, 300, 500 years later than the garment supposedly dates to. And then the reconstruction of the garment also to make it actually say Allah, um, actually pushes the stitching outside of where the selvage would have been finished. Right. So, um, so it, it, you know, there's some problems with it, but it is interesting um, because everybody that's kind of debunking it, she did this. And then uh, uh, one of the professors here uh, at FSU, Adam Geyser, who um, is a, is a great uh, Islamic historian here talking, you know, he was kind of talking about on his Facebook, kind of all making the point that whether this, you know, does say this or not is not really that relevant, but we do know that, you know, the Vikings traded with, you know, Arab traders consistently. And, and we also know that actually, even if they couldn't read Arabic and, and we found other garments and a lot of coinage, in fact, with Arabic on it, um, there's, you know, one coin that I saw an example of, I think Stephanie Mulder may have it in her thread where they actually leave the Shahada on there and then put like this particular Viking king, you know, his face like in the middle, but the Shahada is still around the edge of the coin in Arabic, which is interesting, is that that was the sign of kind of high class, right? They knew that was, um, like, that's what shows that you're learned, that's what shows that you're educated, that you have good taste, is having things that either do look like that or, or that actually maybe have Arabic script or at least look like you think what those people down south wear, 
Right. Well, it, it's it's just fascinating to me that you know we we like to, de- I mean especially Vikings, we like to depict them as these you know Norse uh, white guys, big beards, long hair, which you know yeah sure, right. but uh, just like you. <laughs> hey. So Harrelson means hairy face, um, but the 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 reality is that Vikings were traders, <laughs> you know, and, and they they weren't going to Iceland and Greenland and Newfoundland. Um, they had the, the best taste in names, the best you know best names uh, of, right. of the Dark Ages, I believe. Um, <laughs> they were going to these areas to trade, and when you look at you know kind of a world map, I mean. They were not like stuck in Scandinavia. Not only were they going to Iceland, Greenland, and Newfoundland, but also they were going down the Volga River. Um, th- there was a whole Varangian guard uh, set up in Byzantine or Istanbul, Constantinople, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you know, yeah. um, they might be giants, uh, but but in Constantinople, they're you know part of the the elite guards were the Varangian guards, and they were mostly made up of Norse. Uh, early Moscow was was a, a, a Norse settlement. Uh, the Ukraine, not the I'm sorry, Ukraine was was settled, you know, very early by by uh, by Norsemen as well as people from the plains. So uh, there's there's all this, you know, wonderful history that we kind of ignore because that's Eastern Europe or you know and that has to deal with Constantinople. That's not really Rome and and you know we we, we sort of look past that, but. Uh, yeah, between the coinage that we have in Scandinavia and in places like Moscow and, and right. Istanbul, Constantinople, um, where we have Norse or, or Viking um, burials, uh, such a strong connection. And that it's always frustrating to me that, that we like to think only people, you know, post Christopher Columbus knew how to sail. <laughs> you know, even even the right. Phoenicians. You know, if you want to get back in time and yeah. and look what the Phoenicians were doing. Um, you know, it's 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 uh, kind of one of the the blights on Western tradition, you know, quote unquote, thinking. You know, like there's a steady progression, so therefore, there's no way that the Egyptians were sailing to Madagascar, right. even though, yeah, yeah, you know, there's some some evidence that they were out in the open ocean in the Indian Ocean, floating along, and they were in the Red Sea, and um, you know, uh, we we. We read these stories in the Bible of, of the Queen of Sheba, and we like to think that it's such a big deal that the Queen of Sheba came all the way up from Ethiopia, Sudan, wherever, Saudi Arabia, wherever you know that location was, uh, to visit Solomon, and, and you know that that tells about his majesty. It's like no, that that was pretty common. <laughs> you know, that was a very healthy trade system, and and we can see that in the Fertile Crescent. Um, Right. I think you're right. We do have this kind of myth of uh, steady progress. And we have this idea that, um, well, clearly, you know, we've got to figure out how they did this because, you know, it's clearly a more rudimentary form than, you know, the way we would do it. Um, But, you know, it's know, The pyramids are a great example. They're probably the one that people can most readily kind of relate to and think about. They've at least seen them, you know, pictures of them. But, and it's and it's you know it is an amazing feat and it's amazing what you can do with loads and loads and loads of slave labor right I mean we know this but what's also interesting is 
if you go beyond Giza and you go to Saqqara, for instance, you can look at the step pyramid. So it's a pyramid, but it's, you know, it's stepped up. So it's not kind of the flat sides that you think of at Giza. But if also from Saqqara on a clear day, you can look out into the desert and you can see another set of pyramids that look kind of like the Giza pyramids, but you can see the angles not quite right. And so they have to change the angle. It kind of has to go sharper in at the top real quick to actually get the point together. And so it's kind of this like trial and error. And then we have what we have at Giza where we have the three pyramids and they're all kind of perfectly, you know, pyramid structure and shape and size. And, you know, they're just amazing structures and and they are. Um, But, you know, it's it's. It's like, yeah, we have this what, from 5,000 years ago. We can kind of see the trial and error. We can see the kind of the process of the invention of how this is going about. And you can see the stages of you know them kind of developing this. And But, you know, how would we do that today? I mean, think about how much it would cost today and, and how long it would take to plan. Um, but it's the idea that, yeah, we're clearly, you know, so much more advanced than them. Well, you know, we have wonderful things like, uh, you know, CAD design, computer-assisted design. Right. On, oops. <laughs> hey, Stacy. Hey, Jay. Uh, I just activated. Sorry, I'm not sure. There you go. Um, we, we have people write in all the time that, that like when I leave that in the show that I activate my uh, Echo device yeah. by saying the C word. Computer. Um, <laughs> I'm getting a Google Home this week. Jeez. <laughs> surrounded by technology Uh, so we have all these wonderful uh, technological devices that help us do things like plan out pyramids to make sure they don't fall over as we build them after spending you know 50 years building the the temple at Saqqara but or the pyramid at Saqqara but um, it also when try to open a a file on a zip drive from 15 years ago from 1997 (laughs) or 20 years ago you can't and the same thing's going to happen to us 500,000 years from now where, where people are going to say, wow, wouldn't it be cool to have the plans for the, the Getty Theater in you know, L.A. Or, or the Walt Disney Theater in L.A. or whatever. Like, that's not going to exist because it's not on yeah. paper anymore. You know, right. it's in some fancy, uh, fancy Adobe like In design, you know, file. <laughs> right. It's something. And, and, and .ai files sound really great right now, and they are. I, I work with them hours every day but that's not going to exist in, in a few decades at, at least or at most um, you know so yeah I mean it's kind of nice to, to be able to look back and, and see things like palimpsests you know and, and see d- discover writings of Archimedes that we didn't know existed or discover you know like like a, a, a where monks or, or some or, you know translator someone was working with you know a, a codex um, that we have at, at you know some strange little uh, uh, you know monastery uh, in, in the Sinai, right? Or, or you know finding finding everything that we found, or fragments of the Gospel of Thomas in the trash heap at Oxyrhynchus. Exactly, and you said it correctly. You know, and, and that's that's it's frustrating to to live through this point because it, it's like such a give and take, and and I, I really do feel like we're we're heading to the the digital component of that but no one living today would say you're living in a dark age just like no one living in 800 900 a thousand right. or 600 you know under, under charlemagne i mean charlemagne was amazing and and if you're on the right side 
exactly. <laughs> Charles Poor Martel was people. fantastic if you're not Arab <laughs> or Muslim. Um, but yeah, you know, so uh, that that's always difficult. But like, like you know, we always say the the white people write the histories. So here we are. Yeah, and. Yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot on the show about the process of, like, how we do history, but um, I do think it's it's something to reflect on as we're thinking about, like, Viking stories in the news this week and and obviously, you know, fantastic TV shows that I'm going through. We're kind of finishing the second season right now of Vikings, so, you know, we're going through this one for the first time. Um, And, you know, kind of this, what we have in in our cultural imagination about the quote-unquote Dark Ages, but also to use that and kind of reflect on on where we are and 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 what our practices are and and um you know what we are going to leave behind if anything i mean right we're not all going to leave behind uh da vinci type legacy and and that's okay but honestly some of the most interesting stuff is not the stuff that's left behind by people like that no and that that's what historians want is is the material Right of the common, you know, quote common, the hoi polloi. The realia, right? The realia is what we want. We we want what the hoi polloi were doing. We want their grocery list. We want their, you know, their transaction sheet from when they were buying, you know, a, a lamb and and you know three sacks of grain or whatever. That's what we want. That that tells us something. I mean, the most you interesting know, I, stuff coming out of Oxyrhynchus Oxyrhynchus is not the, the funerary masks. I mean, they're, they're they're amazing, but it's the material that they were using. To, uh, to to line those masks in, right. in order to make the paper mache, like show me the receipts, <laughs> like literally. Exactly. Yeah. And so if you if you don't know what what Sam's talking about, is, you know everybody freaked out for a while about these funerary masks that we found at Oxyrhynchus, but it was actually essentially paper mache. And once they were able to, you know, some of those they pulled apart, and that's controversial. Um, but then they have some other ways of you know kind of reading some of those texts too, and finding these texts that we didn't know that existed. But now we have copies of them, or we've heard about them. We knew the text existed, but we never had a copy of it. We just had a reference in another text. And now we have it because somebody used it. It was a piece of newspaper. It was a piece of trash that they used for their paper mache mask, right? That's that's the stuff that, you know, the stuff of legends, if you will. Well, that's how, that's how we learn about everyday life. And, you know, there's always been such a, a, a emphasis on the great person, idea in the quote western tradition you know jesus buddha confucius uh you know, right. charlemagne uh, um Eckbert, you know whoever <laughs> Eckbert. <laughs> poor Eckbert. you don't want to know what happens to him and so i mean you do and you'll find out but ragnar you know like i i i love that character and right. he's, he's kind of a, a great person character so when i play like like Civilization, like that. Game. Have you ever played Civilization the game? No. Oh, jeez. You know, I'm not a big gamer. I know you're not a big gamer. Everyone's played Civilization anyway. Nope. So, so you you pick your leader, so you can be, um, you know, the this person from, um, you know, eighth century India, or you can be this person, or you can be George Washington, or you can be Lenin, or you know, whoever, and and you kind of lead your country and you try to take over the world, basically. But but it's always that great man. Um, that that sort of sets the stage for history in, in, the, in the Western sense. And there's so much wrong with that. And, and we're finally coming to terms with it. And we're realizing, it, you know, it's, it's not about the great men. It's about, um, you know, the, the, the people who built the pyramid. It's about that, that support system. And, and, 
yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to study Ramesses II or study Seti I or whoever, but it's, it's also fun to try to figure out who built the pyramids. You know, like, what were those people like on a daily basis? Like, how much, how much did they get for their beer rations? How much bread did they get? You know, like, why were they so motivated to spend two generations of, of hard work and people and them and their children and maybe grandchildren, you know, building these sort of massive buildings? And, and what did that mean to them? Because they weren't slaves. Um, and they were, damn sure weren't Hebrew slaves. Uh, you know, so... Hashtag Hyksos. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> it has nothing to do with Hyksos. So, you know, why and, and, and what motivated those people? You know, it's Stonehenge. You know, it, it wasn't Druids right. floating stones, and it wasn't Professor Xavier. You know, like, what, what was it that, that created that? And people are going to say the same about us. Like, how and why did people living in the United States in the 21st century build this amazing, beautiful wall between themselves and the people <laughs> who lived on their southern border? And, like, what motivated them to do that and, and to stand behind this pharaoh who who insisted that they build this thing. I think that's right. You know, I so I think back to a um, you know, um an experience I had in uh, Caesarea, and I probably talked about it on the show before. But you know, we're standing there, and we're kind of inside or on the on the front portico, I guess, of the White Synagogue. There, it's a fourth century synagogue. And it's this, you know, fantastic structure, you know, good, good portion of it still standing. There's some fantastic carvings you can still see in, in some of the columns. Uh, and, it, you know, it's really cool. It's fourth century, which is fantastic time. It's not Jesus. So most people don't care about it. Right. It's not the time of Jesus. So you can't really market it well. But you turn around and, and literally beside, you know, kind of right out the front door of this uh, fourth century synagogue. Is just the village where the villagers lived, where the fishers lived, right? And that to me was a much more meaningful experience, kind of being there, looking over that, you know, the the remains of this village from, you know, that would have had people living in it constantly, you know, the first, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth century, and they fished in the Sea of Galilee, you know, and thinking about, okay, what was life like then in the fourth century? Maybe you go to synagogue, maybe you don't, but you know, you're kind of right there. So people are probably going to notice if you don't go. So maybe you have to go to synagogue, but really you got to go out and fish. And, you know, what are you doing? You know, what are your practices? What new kind of netting practices are you learning? You know, what, what kind of foods are you eating? You know, what's your relationship like with, you know, your neighbor down the path here? Um, that to me was kind of much more meaningful then let's look at these, you know, tourist traps, basically. And I think in a large, to a large degree, the kind of, quote, great men of history are tourist traps for people who are interested in history. Yeah, totally, totally. And, and that's always the frustrating, you know, part, because we, we, we skip over the, um, the, you know, the, the connection that we have. So when I was in college, I got to spend a lot of time in Greece, and I got to spend a lot of time in Rome and, and in Vienna. And and uh, and also York up in in, uh, in Great Britain or in England, and one of the York was all about the Vikings. By the way, I got to go study Jorvik, you know, the, the Viking settlement there. Yep. Um, so w- one of the things that always struck me, wh- whether I was in Delphi or, or whether I was in um, you know Pompeii or Herculaneum, was the the real connection that you you had when you. You know, when you, when you saw a piece of 
you know, petrified bread <laughs> from from the, right. the uh, you know the eruption of Mount Etna, and you realize like, holy shit! Like these people lived and died, and they they weren't just in a history book. And we take that out of uh, things like the Bible, you know. And we talk about Solomon and Jesus uh, and Luke and Matthew, but we don't we don't we don't work hard to make those human connections with men, but especially with women. Right. You know. So I don't know. We're, we're we're coming up to the time of the year where we're going to be talking about Mary and, and, you know, Mary, did you know, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and I look at our, our current political environment, and I think, you know, she she was a person who had a child out of wedlock, didn't have a job necessarily. We don't really know the circumstances. Seemed pretty young, probably a teenager at most. And was, you know, according to one story, a refugee. You know, and, and you don't have to live like a refugee. Um, Tom Petty. You don't listen to Tom Petty. Um, anyway, you know, so, like, yeah, exactly. And and she was a refugee in, in Palestine. Like, a lot of people today would, would turn their nose up at Mary. And uh, she definitely would not have room at the end, which is not a, a Best Western, you know. Like, we're, anyway. Right. Also, there was no inn. There was no inn. It, it was, yeah, it was a stable, which was a cave. Um, there was no wooden I do structure. have a picture of me um, uh, in a manger, <laughs> by the way, at Tel Megiddo. <laughs> what? There's a manger at Tel Megiddo? There's a manger. There's, you know, it's a feeding trough. That's all it is. So there's this, like, cement oh, well, manger. Well, I thought you meant, like, it's it was just... a, like a Francis of Assisi manger. No, you know, no, like no. Wooden... It's like, it's just a, it's a cement manger, you know, but it's yeah, a... Like, like a real manger, know, right. It's, it's a real manger. It's a feeding trough. It's hey, not hey, something English people, manger means to eat. <laughs> <laughs> right. In Italian. It's not something we built for a Christmas play, right? right. So it's because so of a CC came up with this idea, and, and yeah. it's called manger because it, you know, you, the, the horses and stuff would eat in there, and that's why we call it mangers here in, yeah. in 2017. Sorry. So Yeah, no, no, no. So, but anyway, I'm up on the top of Tel Megiddo there, looking out over the Valley of Armageddon, in case you're wondering. And um, so, of course, I got in the manger, and there's a picture of me, and I captioned it, you know, look, Mom, I'm in a manger. Um, yeah, but... No, I, I think I think you're right. I, I think we are a, lo- a lot of historians are trying to do a lot better job um, at kind of getting into doing what's the more complicated but better history, um, and to do a lot better job of actually looking at and paying attention to um, you know women's life and women's voices in history. And to some degree, maybe we're kind of you know, giving voice to these silent voices, though there's some problematic um, aspects of thinking about it that way. You know, we're finally listening to some of these voices and and not prioritizing, not continuing to prioritize the male voices over them. Well, and that's always been my problem with, like, I mean, I, don't, I'm, I have no problem with... Uh, I'm, I'm going to get into some deep shit here. So... My resistance to things like gay studies of Paul, right? Like the thorn in the flesh meant he was gay. Right. Sure. Maybe. Like, but you're coming at the problem from a very white male Western cisgender heterosexual position when you attack that issue that way, or or, or when you know you try to make that study that way in, in a in a way that doesn't take into context. Um, what was going on in the first century, um, you know, Eastern Mediterranean 
in, in regards to sexuality and, and just humanity. Um, you know, and we try to layer kind of our preconceptions on top of that. Whereas things like homosexuality and, and gender identity and fluidity were, were perceived differently then. You know, so it's hard to, I don't know, it's, it's hard for Western people to hop into those topics without, you know, a, a crap ton of um, kind of upfront admissions, <laughs> I guess, beforehand, you know? Am I, am I making yeah. sense? I'm going to piss off no, some people. I, I but... think definitely. Yeah, if you're, you know, if our listeners are interested in um, kind of conceptions of sex and gender um, in antiquity, uh, there is, um, oh, I get, my shelves have all been rearranged now that I've unpacked my library in a new location. And I know I the book you're going to talk about. I gotta look for it on the shelf so I can think of the guy's name. Um, where'd my sex section go? I have a whole section. <laughs> of sex, but I can't find it right now. You know, no, no, yeah. Of course, I have a whole Google section. Browser, Thomas. <laughs> yeah, I have. I have a whole you know section. You know, a couple shelves devoted to sex. Um, I'm just gonna be quiet and let you revel in that. <laughs> I don't know where to look for my books now. They're all you don't, in you don't know where places. to find sex, Thomas. I don't know where to find sex. This is the story of my life. Um, I'll find it at some point. What? But I'm thinking of. <laughs> ah, there we go. Okay, I found it. Um, Patreon.com/slash/thinkingreligion. This is the good stuff, right? Okay, Thomas LaCour. Uh, he has a, a good book called Making Sex. LaCour. Yeah, not liquor, but liquor. Uh It's a really good book. It's called Making Sex. He makes an argument for the quote-unquote one-sex body, the idea that the ancients viewed the body, viewed, their, viewed it as if there was only one sex and that it was a continuum and that uh, essentially you could move up and down the continuum. In a lot of ways, I think he's right, but there's a very strong critique by uh, Helen King, uh, the one sex body on trial, which is also you should pair LaCour with Helen King's work, um, particularly because on the ancient stuff, because she actually is someone who deals in the ancient world, and LaCour just deals in a lot of you know sex and gender theory, and he's not an ancientist. By and she, she's a classicist, right? Right, she's a classicist. So. Um, so pair, pairing those two together, if you're interested in ancient conceptions of sex and gender, uh, also, you know, I did teach a class on this, so, you know, we could have long conversations ab- about that as well. Um, but I, I think that, I think, I think you're right that it is difficult. Um, and I think we're learning this now that we cannot be, there is no such thing as pure objectivity when we're doing history. Though I do think that we can get closer rather than farther away from that and i think that that's what we should strive for and part of the way that we can do that is by educating ourselves by reading liqueur by reading you know helen king um and and reading primary sources too that's the thing that a lot of us don't do these days we're like oh yeah you know ancients they thought this thing because some scholar told me they thought this thing well you know let's let's read a bunch of hippocratic writings and let's see what some hippocratic authors thought and you know let's also maybe not think that we have to paint with a broad brush and say all ancient people thought this way but maybe there's multiple ways of thinking about it just like today hey there's multiple ways that people think about gender um so i i, I think and i think we have 
on on the one hand, we're very far removed from you know we're ta- whether it's talking about the Dark Ages or talking about antiquity. But on the other hand, I think that we would do ourselves a, a, a positive service if we would allow ourselves to make some more connections to the world in which we live and thinking about, okay, how kind of complicated is the world and nuanced is the world in which we live? Probably the ancient world or the dark ages were just like that, but maybe with different questions they were asking and different answers they were offering. Yeah, completely. And, and it's that complexity that, that we try to overlook because Again, the myth of progression saying, oh, well, you know, we're getting much better. So the Sumerians way back, you know, in, in 2500 BCE, they were, they were, you know, just, just carving out some, some symbols on a piece of clay. But now we can, uh, we can tweet. And, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> you know, like, so oh. hashtag progress? Ah, uh, yeah. I, I think I'd rather have the command form. Um, you know, and, and that plus, you know, we, we like to think, well, the Greeks led to us and, and, we're the greatest, and like you said, um, you know, all Greeks thought this way, or, or all people who lived in Egypt thought this way, or whatever. Um, you know, and that's just never been the case. But we like to generalize. And, and I'll, I'll just close on this. I think the, the real blowback we're getting now with things like fake news and and the rise of the, you know, whatever the hell this is with social media and, and Facebook ads. You know, skewing elections and our democracies and, and that sort of thing. That's all a direct result of the Western tradition crumbling, and as as it needs to do from from a certain point of view. And there's something beautiful, I think, to the conception that things like history and um, to just you know, not science. I mean, science is wonderful. Yeah, it's its own little project over there, but. Yeah, from kind of, a, I guess, a liberal arts point of view, people like Walter Isaacson writing books about Leonardo, like, yeah, that's that's fantastic. It's a good book. Go read it. You'll learn a lot. But um, that whole project is necessarily crumbling because we also need to consider that history isn't this linear timeline that, that we want to imagine in the West. And it's okay to realize that, you know, there, there are circles and cycles and... Um, you know, maybe looking at this stuff from uh, white male history, it, it's going to seem as as absurd as we think about, like, the Greeks viewing mythology of, of their gods as kind of history. You know, so in a, in a few hundred years, like, we're going to look back on this period and say, what the hell were they thinking? Like, why did they think that, <laughs> you know, this is this is what history was, or, or this is, you know, how, how to... How was, uh, the best conception of time and, and evolution and, and progression or whatever uh, through society. I don't know. I think the Vikings had it right. I'm, I'm just waiting for Ragnarok. It's going to happen. Bring it on. Let's there it, it is. There, the Vikings had it right. <laughs> Hashtag. Yep. If you want more quality content like that, you can follow us on Twitter. Uh, Sam's at Sam Harrelson. I'm at Thomas Whitley. Uh, as always, thanks for listening. And as always, you can find this great podcast at thinking.fm.